welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Pierre Schlag, Distinguished University Professor and Byron R. White Professor of Law at the University of Colorado Law School. We will discuss his article, the Law Review article, which was published in the University of Colorado Law Review. So welcome to the show, Pierre. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me. This is, this is great. <laughs> I'm really excited to have you on the show because this is one of my very favorite law review articles. And it's in fact an article that really prompted me to start thinking about the potentialities of legal scholarship as something more than just a kind of a vehicle for a means to, to an end. But I was wondering if we could start by you just briefly describing the article itself and sort of how you conceptualized what you wanted to accomplish when you started writing it. Sure. So um, the, the article tries to um, describe what is happening in each section of the classic or standard law review article, even as it's doing it. Um, so my goal in doing this was to talk about the limitations of the law review article as a, as a genre uh, and to talk about the difficulties that arise in writing uh, a law review article, the, the basically the, the challenges that arise intellectually because the, the genre I think has pretty serious limitations and some serious problems. And in terms of my general aim, uh, I think I, I was writing mostly for uh, law review editors law review people and legal academics. And I think my, my, my major goal was to try to get people to do something else in terms of, of scholarship, in terms of their writing. Mm, well, maybe you could describe to some, uh, briefly describe sort of the, the form of the article itself, like sort of from a kind of big picture overview, sort of how did you break down the law review article and sort of how did you think about what each one of the sections was going to do as you were describing the elements in question? Let me, let me start at the back end. So I've, I have written a lot of law review articles myself um, and, I, and, and I've really read a tremendous amount of law review articles at this point um, and at, at, at workshops, colleagues' articles, articles I need to read uh, professionally. So I've read a tremendous amount of articles and they seem to me to be very stylized. So for the first part of your question, um, I talk about the introduction and usually the introduction in a law review article tries to grab the reader's attention. So often it's an anecdote or a story or something very provoking. Uh, and so I describe <laughs> I describe how one does this, how one provokes, even as I'm trying to provoke by describing what, what goes on. Um, uh, basically, uh, I talk about the extent to which a, a law review introduction really tries to present to the reader the idea that this is not a law review article uh, at all. It's going to be really a page turner. It's going to be gripping. Um, in part, you know, law review articles are written like that, not just to capture uh, an audience, but to impress law review editors into actually publishing and reading the thing. Then uh, I talk about, you know, how, how basically the reader needs to be gentled into the recognition that this is a law review article after all, that um, we're going to have to get serious. 
we're going to have documentation, we're going to have arguments, we're going to have lots of authority, um, and so on and so forth. And of course, I give lots of the documentation authority as I'm, I'm doing this. And then, and then, you know, basically we drift into the second part, part two, which is the statement of the issues. And there we'll, we'll have huge problems of scope which will have to be very carefully defined. And so I talk about that. And then, you know, part three, which is uh, the literature review section and which I skip over in two sentences, basically saying, this is the literature review section. Okay, enough of that. So, the, you know, and it just goes on and on um, in, in, in this way. Um, I, I think it's almost a story through the law review article genre. It's what you encounter as you read a law review article, uh, or it's what you encounter as you write a law review article. Mm. Part by part. Assume, assuming you start at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you ask in the paper what a law review article is, and, and I can't help but wondering whether the article that you wrote is itself a law review article by virtue of appearing in a law review or something else. So, you know, many people think that anything that's published in a law review is, is a law review article or a note or a comment just automatically. But I think, I think of that as kind of a, a reified understanding. And I think of a law review article as more uh, a genre. And, and, and while I don't know that you could publish a law review article in any place other than a law review, I think you can publish um, things, and I think I have throughout my career, that would be hard to consider law review articles. They're mostly essays or they're, they're provocations or they're thought pieces. Um, I, I, I don't think the law review article could be considered an article. <laughs> I mean, on one level, I wanna call it literary criticism, sort of thinking of the yes. law review as a literary genre, but there seems to be a kind of conceptual art element almost to it as, as well. I mean, it isn't just literary criticism. Mm -hmm. No, so I think, you know, I think it is, I, I, I think it's a really good point. It is literary criticism, but it's the kind of literary criticism which has implications for, um, I don't want to get too fancy here, but the epistemology of the, of the law review article, what you can know, what you can't know, what you can say, what you can't say. And the genre has very, very strict limits. And, um, you know, fiction has very strict limits. I learned that when I wrote uh, my novel, American Absurd. You can't just do anything. You can't just change points of view unless you've started out doing that. You, there are certain things that characters know and don't know. Um, and so there is, there is criticism on, on the literary level, but, but there is also discussion of what that does to what you can discuss, what you can't discuss, and how that will actually possibly undermine the knowledge enterprise, right? Which is a fairly severe impeachment, frankly. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I, I found really fascinating and provocative the first time, well, and every time I've read the article and used it in class is the way that you explicitly treat the form of the law review article as a literary form, because I think that most people doing legal scholarship don't think of it that way. And I wonder if you could talk about how you think that literary form determines what people can do 
in legal mm -hmm. scholarship. Right. So, so I mean, so let me focus on, on, on a couple of problems. One is the, the statement of the issue, right, which you would do, you would have in a brief, you would have in a, in a, a bench memorandum, uh, and you have also in, in the law review article. Um, one of the things that happens in the law review article is that you need to be able to state an issue that you can resolve, right? If you cannot resolve it, it will not be a law review article and you will not get it published, right? You need to be able to resolve the, and, and so one of the effects of that constraint is to greatly limit what we can talk about, right? And, and if you think about it, it's kind of bizarre that we can only talk about those things that we can resolve, right? And, and then you have this, this additional problem that one of the reasons we can resolve the issues is because we've stated the issues in such a way that they can be resolved, right? Um, you know, judicial opinions do this as well. Right? Um, and perhaps that's where the model comes from. But there's a lot that we can't talk about if, if one of the criteria is it has to be subject to resolution. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one thing that struck me is that there is a kind of subgenre, very small subgenre of legal scholarship that breaks the sort of classical form of the law review article, especially as it sort of emerged and reified over the years. Um, but at least yours was the first one that I read that didn't just break the form, but was sort of recursive in a sense that it looked back on the form and was an article about the reification of the form of the law review yeah, article. Yes, yes. And, I, um, and I, I have a footnote, I think, where I talk about the idea that this is not just uh, a report on the state of knowledge or it's not just uh, a literary form. It's also a disciplining uh, mechanism. It's also an artifact. It's also advertisement for the professional self. It's also, uh, uh, and I think this is unconscious, but it's an attempt to uh, reinforce the conventions that hold within the community. And this goes generally unspoken and unchallenged, right? Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a, it does a lot of work, actually. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if, like, taking a step back from the article itself, you could talk a little bit about what law review articles are for and how, if at all, your article sort of reflects on or comments on the purpose of the law review article as a genre. Yeah, so, I, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a, basically a thoroughgoing comment all, all throughout. So I think that part is easy as to what, for me at least, but um, as to what law review articles are for, um, a huge part of what they are for, I think, is screening for a tenure. Uh, that is, they are a display of, of mastery in a particular area and particular field. Uh, and, and this counts a lot for tenure, uh, principally because we have a, a harder time evaluating teaching. That is truly difficult, evaluating teaching. And, and this, this becomes uh, basically a, a, a tenure uh, mechanisms. Most law review articles are addressed to some sort of official legal actors, uh, judges, legislatures, 
um, and the like, I'm extremely skeptical that these audience are being reached. So I you know, it's, I just don't think that's, that's happening. I think this is a, a literary gesture um, more than anything. So I don't think it's, so I don't think that uh, law review articles are for, for legal officials. Um, I think many of them are for uh, law professors. I think that's, that's part of the big readership. Um, it seems to me to, that it's a constellation of, of styles, and this is a kind of unhappy mix, right? So on, one, on the one hand, you're writing for the law review editor, trying to get your article placed. It has to be intelligible to the law review editor. Um, you're also talking to official legal actors because that's the, that's the style, that's the, the norm. Uh, you might be trying to talk to lawyers. You're also trying to talk to law professors and you have all of these audiences. And I'm not sure that these audiences have all that much in common in terms of what they want uh, from, from a law review article. Um, and I think that the law that they deal with is, is very different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder if you think that kind of many masters quality, as it were, of this sort of effective market for legal scholarship um, affects the attractiveness of this kind of reification of the genre in the sense that, you know, as long as it's kind of consistent with what everyone else is producing in terms of what it looks like, it doesn't stand out too much and doesn't offend anyone. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think it rules from the grave, frankly. Um, uh, yeah, the standard law review article does, no, I don't think it can, it can offend anyone. It's really hard to, within the, the, the pure style, so to speak, it's pretty hard to, to offend anyone. It's, it's highly formal. Um, there's a sense in which even the more anti-formalist law professors are being formalist in, in the sense that they're adhering to a form when they're talking about adjudication, they are talking about the law, but this is a law in which, you know, there is no client, there is no court date, um, there is no judge. The rules of the game are themselves subject to change by the person writing the law review articles. So you can imagine if, if law were practiced this way by litigators, right? Not only do I get to make an argument about what the rules are, but I actually get to change the rules. Well, I mean, how teleological do you think this form was? I mean, is in a sense, are the seeds of the modern law review article already present in the sort of origins of the idea of modern legal scholarship? Or was this a choice that we made in like intentionally or unintentionally as a subset of the profession? So I think I think the, the the genre was laid down you know really long ago in the in the late late 19th century, um, and and I think and 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 we've really had a lot of formalist or classical legal thinkers uh, who saw basically the kind of law they do as the kind of law that judges do or ought to do if if only they were law professors right. Um, and so there was a, a convergence, and I think it was it was laid down at that time. Now, for 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 decades, 
right? Law reviews were committed to finding out what the law is. And then at some point they became more explicitly normative. I think they were normative back when they were stating what the law is, but they were at least presented in the is style, uh, much like treatises are, are still presented in the is style. Now, now they're more openly normative. I don't, I don't know that anybody actually made a choice. Um, if, you, if you think about it, right, the law review article has a terrific resemblance to the structure of a judicial opinion or a bench memo or a brief. Right? It, it departs from, from those artifacts in certain ways. It's, it's more detached. It makes a claim to greater thoroughness, uh, to, to a certain amount of impartiality, higher knowledge standards, but it's, it's basically the same form. And maybe the form is the law. Maybe that, you know, maybe, maybe that's part of the problem, right? That is, we are, we are basically rehearsing a particular form because we still believe that this is the form of law. Yeah, I mean, I've no, I note that there's like an incredible stickiness to the law review format such that even kind of self-professed critical approaches to legal thought seem to take the seem seem to be expressed in what ultimately amounts to or reduces to the same form as that which they're critiquing and i wonder to what extent you think that limits the ability to critique the substance of the object of the criticism i think you are dead on i think that is dead right. I don't think I want to add anything to what you said. I, that really, yes, it concerns me. It bothers me. I think that is dead on. I think, uh, I think it, any sort of critical detachment is really belied uh, and, 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 and neutralized by the form. Mm. Well, I'm one so thing, yeah, I mean, one thing that I find quite puzzling myself is that as fully promoted law professors, or even just as tenured, law professors, we really have carte blanche to do whatever we want. I mean, unlike in other disciplines, we can write about anything we want. And basically anything we write can find a home somewhere just because, you know, essentially everything ultimately gets published. And yet, despite that Abs almost absolute academic freedom to engage in scholarship in whatever form or medium or capacity we want, everyone still seems to keep doing the same thing. Why? So that, that's a really good question, and I can speculate. Um, I don't know why. I mean, in, I, you know, in, in, in another article, Spam and Jurisprudence, I make that exact, that same point, right, that, why, you know, you, you have tenure, you, you, you have secure employment, why, why not write what you want? It's hard to believe that this is what you want to write. Um, and I, 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 can speak, I, I think there are instrumental reasons that people write law review articles. I don't think, um, I mean, it can be very tough, I think, to write a really good doctrinal article, right? I think it can be, in fact, extremely tough but I think for most people, they just fall into this and, you know, it's relatively easy. Uh, and now that there's Lexis and Westlaw and Google Scholar and, you know, it's, it's become even easier. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, I wonder then if you could talk a little bit more just about the kind of the banality of the form. I mean, is there an appeal 
do you think, to law professors of that banality? Is it a kind of inheritance from our professional backgrounds? And like, why do we feel that need? And, and in addition, why do we feel this need for resolution that you point to in your article? Um, so, so I think, you know, there's a tremendous amount of identification between law professors on the one hand and legal officials on the other. Legal officials do need to come to a resolution and do need to decide cases, right? Law professors don't have to, but insofar as they're identified with legal officials, insofar as they think this is what law is and I'm doing law, there are a great number of law professors who think I am doing law. Now, I, 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 I very often do not think that they are doing law, uh, but, but I, I, and they would not be pleased to hear that, I suppose, but, um, but I think that great many think that they're doing law and that they're doing something useful in doing law. Um, so, so, so I think that's part of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, in the article, you describe the project as a performative study <laughs> of the Law Review article. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because I'm going to encourage listeners to go out and read the article itself because it's the kind of defies description and really needs to be experienced. But, but I think it'll be helpful for people to kind of understand sort of how you conceptualize what it means for what you're doing to be a performative study of the genre. All right. So, so the, the, the term performative plays two roles um, in in this article. And, And one of them is, it occurs in, in, in the abstract, which is a pretty outrageous abstract, suggesting that this article is for law professors, judges, uh, the Supreme Court, the entire universe. Um, and, and so the abstract is written in, in the, the classic overreaching, overclaiming style of law review articles. And so that my use of the term performative was supposed to be just like trendy in, it, in, in that uh, satirical way. But it's also accurate as a description of the article. And this goes back to basically performing in each section what that section is supposed to do, right? So I perform a conclusion in the conclusion, although the conclusion is fun because it really doesn't work out very well. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so one thing that's really interesting about that for me is that by performing the elements, it seems to both fail but succeed at the same time in the sense that it doesn't actually do what that section is supposed to do within the genre itself. And yet it succeeds at doing something else, namely encouraging the reader to take a step back from the genre and think about the sort of way in which the genre is designed to produce the resolution that it exists for. You know, I think, I think that's exactly right. And you make me think right now that one of the, one of the great difficulties in, in writing this sort of article or indeed, well, this sort of essay or indeed any sort of, of uh, uh, legal essay is that if you are trying to talk about form, right? And what form does, that is really hard to do. Right. I mean, the substance, the substance you can enmesh yourself in because you have all these substantive disputes and you have all these foils and frameworks and 
and uh, things that you can push against, right? Or anchor yourself in. You have, you have baselines that, and they're familiar to the audience. But if you want to talk about form and the form of law, right? Without, without getting too much in the into the substance because people will be distracted by the substance, right? That's, that's pretty hard to do. And, and that might be, that might be a, a possible source of the failure. Although I think, I think you're absolutely right, right? I mean, I don't end up doing actually what, what the section is doing. I end up talking about you know, how the section is having problems doing what it's doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, one and I try to name them too. Yeah, I mean, one thing that really struck me, um, kind of drawing on that old line from, I think it was Maitland, you know, the, the law secreted in the interstices of procedure. I mean, it struck me that so much of the substance of legal scholarship, the real substance is actually sort of, you can only see it if you read between the lines of the form of how we frame the questions we can ask and implicitly sort of those shadow questions that we're excluding from the scope of what's askable. Yeah. So I think that's a very useful uh, lesson for, for uh, uh, law students and, and uh, people who are going to be lawyers, right? So to be able to look at, at the form and how the form accomplishes the substance or the substantive goals of the brief or of the opinion uh, and to be attentive to that, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so the, the, the law review article, my law review article, uh, <laughs> basically <laughs> describes the operations that need to be done. And by highlighting them, it, it shows the, the vulnerable points of legal arguments at the level of form. Um, and I think, I think that's, that's useful for people who are going to be uh, litigators. I don't, I don't, I don't have much experience with transactional law, so I don't really know what to say about that. Mm. So I wonder if you use this article in a pedagogical context and whether you do or don't, have, if you have any suggestions about how people like me, for instance, might use it to sort of help students think about the form of legal scholarship productively, whether or not they're looking to break the form or actually just to better understand the form that they're trying to write in. Um, yeah, so I've, I've used this, um, this essay in my jurisprudence course, along with another essay called The Knowledge Bubble um, and, and Spam Jurisprudence. Um, and, and, in, and I use it at the, at the end of the semester uh, to, to wrap up uh, and to talk about um, epistemic limitations in, in legal form. Um, in terms of teaching, uh, I, think, I think that you know, the, the, the things that could, could be really important out of, out of this article has to do with the problems that arise, such as you know, what's the scope? How do you frame the issue? Uh, what is it that you're talking about? Is, is what you're talking about a way of avoiding the issue? All these, all these moves that lawyers do consciously and unconsciously, I think it is helpful pedagogically to bring them out. I try to give them names like entry framing and 
exit framing and all this, this sort of stuff. Speaking of which, um, I have, I have a book coming out with, um, my friend, Amy Griffin, it's coming out tomorrow called how to do things with legal doctrine. Um, and it's all about all sorts of moves that are made routinely by, by lawyers and judges and law professors. Amazing. Well, we'll have to have the two of you come back on the show to talk about the book. I, I can't wait. I can't wait to read it. Um, I wonder if in closing, you could just reflect briefly on what you'd like potentially to see us as legal scholars do about the form of legal scholarship or whether maybe you think that there's not anything we can do to sort of think about the form of what we're doing and how it cabins or determines the sort of substantive work that we're actually producing. So I, I would like, ideally, I think it would be great if people broke out of, of this form at least once in a while um, and, and, and talk more readily about what they think, what they believe, what they think is problematic, um, and if they pursued um, intellectual problems. Um, somewhere I've said that, actually I may have said it several times now, uh, but somewhere I said that, that legal scholarship ought to have at least one of three virtues. It ought to have some moral and political significance. It ought to be um, intellectual um, or it ought to be aesthetically edifying. And if it were one of those three, I think that would be great. Uh, but, but, but this form which mixes audiences and which has become very stylized and which we don't know why we're doing it anymore has become very problematic. So I have to say too that, um, that I benefited from starting out doing this at a, at a particular time. I started teaching in law schools in 1982. Um, and and uh, in some sense, there was a great deal more latitude in terms of the things that would be accepted uh, in, in law reviews. Um, and I think that had a lot to do with the kind of education that uh, uh, law review editors had before law school, actually. Um, and I think now we're getting to be very, very professionalized in ways that, that are really, uh, from my perspective, unfortunate. And mm -hmm. I think it's much tougher for, uh, for pre-tenure people and, and people who've just been tenured. Great. Well, Pierre, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, I love your article. It was a great pleasure to talk to you about it. And I hope I can have you on again to talk some more about your fantastic work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Show's ending now 
so please take a bow for the best performance of the year. You were playing your part to perfection. And the words I love you were so clear. Darling, listen because you'll hear my applause for the best performance of the year. I was carried away, I was spellbound. I can honestly say I wasn't bored. All the critics should write. Columns, you deserve the Academy Award. Oh, how thrilling you were in each love scene, but you left me an ache and a tear. You're the head of the town. The curtain comes down on the best performance of the year. For the best performance.